Jacob renamed his son after he was born from son of sorrow to son of my right hand, Benjamin. We're going to talk about that and much more today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembert. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV as we explore the Bible for the 32nd time. 32 years we've been doing this and it is something. Here to help us today is Corey and Ryan. Corey, what's going on? Well, today I'm going to be taking a look at the modern day site called the Tomb of Rachel. Ryan? Today, Patricia Engler is back to talk about how she handled information that challenged biblical teaching during her time in secular university. And that will be good. A very interesting interview indeed. Janice, what did you do today? Today, I'm going to talk about pillars or monuments in our life. All right, very good. So get your Bible out, the most important book of all, God speaking to us. And let's listen to what the Lord says. And if you don't have a Bible guide, stay tuned. We'll tell you how to get one. Genesis 35, verses 16 through 26. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, before she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, and it happened, when Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant were Dan and Ephtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 26. Genesis 35 to 37, that's what we read today as we continue going through God's holy word. Now, in the last verses of Genesis 35, the generation and situations change. Rachel, as she is dying in childbirth, names her son Ben-Oni as her last act. Now, this name tragically means son of my sorrow. Now, her husband Jacob chooses instead another name to honor both of them by calling that son Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand. I mean, this is fascinating. Now, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, ends up sleeping or going to bed with Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, who had been a concubine to Jacob to have children for Rachel at the beginning. 
Now, this error would cost Reuben dearly, believe me. And after these changes in his family, Jacob, now called Israel, must also have found himself changed. I mean, it is clear that Benjamin grew, as Benjamin grew, that he had treated, he was treated differently than his brothers. And as Rachel was favored, so he was favored. Now, in all of this human darkness, God was still on the move. God was working through human frailty for the good. Very interesting. And as we look at this, we need to think about how God works through our human frailty. Today, we talk about generation change. This is what we're going to be dealing with today. And as we do, take your Bible guide and turn to today's reading. If you don't have a Bible guide, why not? I'll send you one. If you write to me or call me, or uh, if you just go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, where it will take you to a page that uh, is a donation page. Let me say thank you very much for your donations. They continue to keep us strong. And so that's the only way we have support. So thank you for that. But also I need to tell you that when you're done, you go to a PDF page and that downloads the Bible guide as it is. So you're literally seconds away from seeing us. And we need to pray because we're going into verses 16 to 26 of Genesis 35. Never covered this before. So let's pray. Father, help us. We're reading from the Bible to us. Help us not read from our ideas in, but help us to read from the Bible to change how we think. Because that's how you teach us. And that's how we grow in you. And that's how Christians gain their insight to who God is. In the name of Jesus Christ, and this we all pray together, and we said, amen and amen. All right, now let's take a look at this because it gets really interesting. Genesis 35, beginning with verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrata, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor, difficult labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, don't fear, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, as she died in that childbirth, that she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrata, that is Bethlehem. And at Jacob's set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now that brings me to a very interesting point. Jacob renamed his son Benjamin, which Rachel died giving birth to, because the future of Israel was good. Now God knows our future and readies us for it. God knows what our future is, beloved. Now, this is a terrible thing when you give birth and there is loss of life. I mean, birth is not designed for loss of life. It's designed to bring new life. And yet in this time, Jacob names his son, son of my right hand. In other words, the son who will do for me. Isn't that interesting? Because God knew and understood exactly what was happening. And God realized the difficulties the marriage had. So that's important to remember. God knows from where we come. God knows from where we have emerged. 
And he has chosen for us a name that we may go forward. We need to pay attention to what God says, not what man says. Genesis 35, 21 to 22a. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Not a good idea. You see, Reuben's sin found him out, and all of our sins will find us out. Let me tell you, they will. We must always confess to God and turn away from sin in our life. Beloved, sin will find us out. The Bible tells us that sin will find us out. You cannot get rid of sin because it's inside of us. But what we need to do is confess our sin and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Just go right to the, the source, God, and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I'm not going to try to hide from you. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. And do you know what God will do? God will come in and turn things around and make us right. And then he'll work with us to overcome the sin, all of those sin emotions and everything else in us. And we will begin to forge our way to be like Christ. That is Jesus Christ. That is we become Christians. Very important. Let's keep that in mind. Now, 22 to 26, watch this. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Now, the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah were Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, were Gad and Asher. Now, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, God had made this very clear. You see, God performs his work in advancing layers. The 12 tribes of Jacob's children are named on the gates of the new Jerusalem. God is still fulfilling his plans today. What did you say? Well, if you go to Revelation 21, you'll learn. All of the gates are named after the sons of Jacob, the sons of the man called Israel. So let's keep that in mind. We need to understand that God is in the midst of fulfilling his purpose. God is in the midst of doing what he's going to do. God has never stopped. I want to tell you right now, God has never stopped. So let's pay attention to this and let's make sure that we understand as we move forward, it's not just about us, but we are in the mold of what God has designed us to be because we are part of the body of Christ, which is a much bigger entity than our lives. And that becomes important because our lives are very sacred and important as Christians. But we need to understand that God has planned for us to do certain things that only we can do in our lives. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying, Lord, use me in your will today and help me to follow you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus.
Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study, and today I'm continuing to show you clips from my latest product called A World by Design, the Niagara Conference, which is the second installment in this ongoing series. And in this clip, Patricia Engler of Answers in Genesis is going to talk to us a little bit about how she handled information that challenged her biblical worldview during her time in secular university. So if you're a student or thinking about going to university or college, then this one is especially for you. So let's jump into the conversation that's already in progress. Now, what did you do when you heard new information that challenged biblical teachings as a student? Yes, so that's where this critical thinking system comes into play. So the first thing I do when I heard some sort of new faith challenging information is I had to just remind myself, you know, I know God's word is true. Anything that contradicts it must be a lie. On some level, all eyes have to fall apart so I don't have to panic. That's kind of one thing because you might feel like your heart beating a little faster and you hear new information. And you're like, what if I'm wrong? So just remembering that, whoa, whoa, God knows the truth. That was the first step. Don't panic. And then what I would do is put the information in quotation marks when I was taking notes in class because that freed me psychologically from feeling like I was writing down a definite fact. I was just writing down what my professor said. And then what I'd do is flip to the back of my notebook and write down any questions I had about it so that I could follow up on those questions later with apologetics resources or with a biblical creationist mentor. So that was the first thing I'd do. And then when I had a chance to follow up on that information later on, what I would do is walk through a system of critical thinking that I now call the seven checks of critical thinking. So first I'd check scripture and compare the message against what the Bible already says to see if it's true or false because scripture is our ultimate authority for truth. And then I check the challenge and ask, okay, is this actually challenging my faith in a non-negotiable non doctrinal issue? Or is it just challenging like my opinions about worship styles or something that's more of a side issue? And then I check the source, like who's telling me this message? How credible are they? Are they an expert in that field or another field? What's their worldview? What are their motives? Then I'd check the definitions and define any keywords like science or evolution or personhood or just some of these things that can have different definitions that might switch during an argument that you really got to watch for. Then I'd also want to check for propaganda. So that's, of course, anything that persuades by appealing to something other than logic, which is just so common, not only in consumer advertisements, but also just in what you hear in classes. So. A really great critical thinking hack, I think, for doing this is just to ask yourself, okay, why does this sound persuasive? And is this message true because fill in the blank? Because my professor said so, because everybody seems to think so, because it was really eloquently expressed, because people who disagree are called names. Like these are all types of logical fallacies, but you don't actually need to know the fancy Latin names for all those fallacies to recognize that they're not truth. So just being able to ask, why does this sound persuasive? That helped me catch a ton of propaganda. And then at that point, I would be left with just the facts and their interpretations. So next I'd think about, okay, what's, what's an actual observable fact here? That's just like the raw data, the observational science, we call it advances in Genesis that everyone can agree on versus what's the interpretations and the assumptions and the story about the past that's being constructed. Because that story is gonna be presented as though it's much of a fact as the observational science. So just being able to separate those two is really important. So for instance, let's say you got a dinosaur bone and your textbooks will say, well, this is 65 million years old. That's actually an interpretation based on a lot of assumptions. The bone is a fact. So just being able to differentiate between those. 
And then the last step is just to check for any other types of logical fallacies that you might have missed in all those processes. So by the end of that, like I'd pretty much have been able to respond to any kind of issue that came up. But even if I had unresolved questions at the end, that's when I would, again, not panic, leave that with God, ask him for an answer, or bring it to mentors and look it up in solid apologetics websites like Answers in Genesis provides. So that was the system that I used for critical thinking, and it really helped me get through like entire intensive evolutionary classes and just be able to handle like, every bit of information that was thrown at me without letting it pile up. Again, if you want to see all the interviews that you've been seeing for the past week and a half here on the program, then you can get a hold of them on my latest special called A World by Design, the Niagara Conference, which has every interview totally uncut. Now, what I've been showing you is just a small amount of what's actually on here. And there's also some special bonus features when you purchase a physical copy of this DVD set. Just simply call, write in, or order online at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And if you want to know more about Patricia, then I would definitely encourage you to head over to the Answers in Genesis website at AnswersInGenesis.org. It's very important that they remember that and also remember that on the next program, we're going to be talking about Judah, who does not do well under temptation. He actually fails, and this is a very interesting time. So we'll talk about that tomorrow on the next program. Corey? All right, well, I'm going to be focusing in on Genesis chapter 35 today. Now, a lot happens in Genesis chapter 35. You remember that uh, Jacob has to go back to Bethel. God calls him to go back to Bethel to fulfill his promise of building an altar there. And in order to do that, Jacob has his family relinquish all of their household idols and buries them uh, in order to purify themselves to go uh, to Bethel, which is, you know, probably quite surprising for most of us, seeing as how uh, Jacob, this man who's following God, his family still has idols and, and household gods, you know, carrying with them. And later on in the chapter, we read about uh, Rachel's death. So Jacob's most loved wife, her death, and we're told where he buries her. So let's take a look at some of the history and the archaeology of the site today that claims to be her resting place. The history of the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs is recorded in the biblical book of Genesis. While fraught with questionable actions and moral failures, the Bible presents the lives of these nation founders as the beginning of God's amazing plan for salvation. Some biblical sites directly associated with the personal lives of these patriarchs are still known to us today, nearly 4,000 years later. Amongst them is the unusual tomb of Rachel, the second but beloved wife of Jacob and mother to Joseph and Benjamin. Genesis 29 to 35 tell Rachel's story, her marriage to Jacob, her war with her sister Leah for cultural supremacy in their household, the stealing of her father's family idols, and her death on the way to Bethlehem from complications and childbirth. This is a tragic account of a woman loved but plagued by cultural expectations that haunted her in her barrenness. As she was beginning to overcome them, she died, cut off too soon to enjoy her victory. The biblical authors record specifically that instead of inter her in the family tomb of his grandfather Abraham, Rachel's husband Jacob instead buried her where they were, along the path of the road to Bethlehem. He's said to have set up a marker on her grave where it was still standing hundreds of years later at the time of the writing of Genesis. 
About a thousand years after her death, the prophet Jeremiah used the matriarch Rachel in his prophecy about the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonians. He pictures her as weeping over the deportation of her people. When God replies that he hasn't truly abandoned them, he would bring them back from exile in his time. Matthew uses this image again in his gospel in reference to a slaughter ordered by Herod the Great. The traditional location of Rachel's tomb is today kept as a place to honor this mother of three tribes of Israel. In the Byzantine period, an open dome structure was placed over the tomb both to honor it and serve as shelter from the elements. It was further renovated in 1841 by closing up the dome structure and adding a receiving room. Today, it's protected by strong modern walls and guard towers that surround the original structure. Now, there are some biblical scholars who connect the death of Rachel to the surrendering of the household idols, because you'll remember back when Laban was chasing Jacob, because uh, Rachel had stolen Laban's household idols, uh, Jacob said, well, no, whoever, when we find the person who did it, whoever finds it, they're going to die for this crime. And of course, they didn't find out Rachel at that point. But then before going to Bethel, when everyone would have had to surrender their household idols, the theory is that Rachel's idols were, you know, revealed and buried and that then Jacob may have felt responsible for the death of his beloved wife because it happened so closely afterwards. And perhaps this goes a long way in explaining his extra preferential treatment and care over Benjamin. There's so much around these stories. It's absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. as we delve into this. So this is great, Janice. Mm -hmm. Well, today I wanted to talk about pillars because once again, we read here with Jacob that he set up a pillar on Rachel's grave. And, um, you know, these monuments or pillars were actually made from stone. They were stone structures or architectural structures. If you think today that a lot of us use a, a, a headstone when uh, one of our loved ones has passed away and we put their name and, and something on that gravestone to, to make a marker for us to remember that person by. But largely in our culture today, we don't set up structures for us to mark special events. And, and this is something that Jacob did. It says here in Genesis 25, 19 and 20, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now, it's interesting to, to note here too that Rachel was the only one of the principal characters in Abraham's family of promise that was not buried in the cave of Machpelah. Just a little note there to remember. So Jacob erected pillars to mark God's great works in his life. You'll remember um, with Jacob's dream when he dreamt of the ladder going up to heaven, he used the stone where he had put his head as a pillow. He set that up the next day as a stone monument to remember that uh, section by. In, in um, Genesis 35 verse 14, where God spoke to Jacob in Bethel and changed his name from Jacob to Israel, he also set up a pillar there. These were definite, life-changing experiences in Jacob's life. We see it now here, a time of sorrow. He is building this monument or setting up this pillar as a monument of sorrow to remind him all of these very life-changing events going on in Jacob's life. Why am I bringing that up today? It reminded me 
that so much in our busy culture, we don't see structures in the same way. They don't have the same meaning or we don't take the same time as these ancients did in their time. And I think that we are, we are not doing ourselves or our Lord God any service by not remembering. And I think that we need to place markers in our own heart of the, the, the events that God brings into our lives. And you and I both know personally, intimately, the areas that I'm talking about. I can think of several in my own life right now, happy and sad, that were definitely uh, pinpoint things in my life where God made a shift in my life and was teaching me and using those moments to to change my course or to change my attitude or to change my life. And what that becomes for me is something to mark, something to remember, that as I look back and I, I think of the greatness and the faithfulness of God, as I get older, there's more and more things for me to look back on and remember the faithfulness of God and what He has done. And what that does is it, it brings a testimony. It becomes my testimony of the things that God has done for me in good times and in also troubled times, but that God has always been there and always faithful. And the things that I didn't understand over here, I do. And some of the things I still don't understand, but that's okay. It becomes our testimony and it can be a monument. It can be a pillar that as we're sharing our faith of Jesus Christ, as we're living our life and being an example and loving others as we we love our, our Lord and our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we can be an encouragement to others in how God has led us through our life, much like Jacob did, setting up these stone monuments mm. or these stone pillars as a marker for those that would come behind him for the generations yet to come of God's faithfulness and how he turned and changed Jacob in, in, in these times. And, you know, we don't, we're not really doing the Lord any favors when we just remember the only thing that's really important is what's happened in the last 24 hours. That's not the way to live. The way we live is we remember what God has done in our life. And share it with others. Yes. Today, as we talked about the change of creation, we pray this way. We say, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Lord, I pray today that you would be able to make your will happen, not my will, but your will happen as we go forward on this day in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen.